Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Mark introduces you to some of the world's leading creative talent from publishing, film, music, restaurants, medical research, and more. You'll discover how to tap into your most original thinking, how to organize your ideas, and most of all, how to make the connections and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Mark Stenson, and this is the podcast where we go all around the world talking to creative artists of all kinds. And we're just so fortunate today to have as our guest, David Page. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good to be here. Well, if you've heard this song, then you know the work of David Page. He is creator of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And he's gone all around the country, and his host, Guy, has gone all around the country checking out the food. But now he's captured some of those travels in a brand new book called Food Americana. And it's the stories behind the people and places and the foods. That, and David, it's, it's great stories. Thank you very much. It's a subject that is dear to my heart. And in terms of our, you know, when we think about the creative process, you know, how did you begin to patch these stories together? town by town, byway by byway. Well, when I did diners, uh, which I did the, I created, did the first 11 seasons of, it was a question of very clearly looking for different geography and some of the detail behind making a TV show. Everything is dictated by the budget in the final analysis. So one of the things we used to have to do was look for locations that would allow us to cross borders and hence do segments from multiple places while on one trip. In writing the book, it was much more about finding representative examples of particular genres of American cuisine. And in some cases, less than a particular location, it was looking for something that wasn't a particular location. In other words, my premise of the book is that there are foods which came from someplace else that are now eaten so consistently all across the country by almost all of us that that's an American cuisine put together. Hence, I went looking in many cases for examples of those foods where you might not expect them. In other words, if you're going to write about pizza, of course, you're going to write about New York. You'll probably write about San Francisco, maybe Philadelphia, Chicago. But then I had to go looking for an example of pizza that was excellent, representative of the growth of the food across the country, representative of the fact that it's becoming grained in a particular part of the country. So I ended up saying to myself, let's look for good pizza, not on each coast and not in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I ended up choosing a place called Bordenaro's in Des Moines, Iowa. When, when you say Des Moines, Iowa, people don't say pizza, mm-hmm. but Bordenaro's is now the second generation of the Bordenaro family, making tremendous pizza pretty much in the center of the country. Uh, about as far away as you can get from any port of immigration. So so that was that was much of the search. Now, obviously, there are certain things that are going to take you to certain places. If you're going to write about Nashville hot chicken, you're going to write about Nashville. Mm-hmm. If you're going to write about chicken wings, which I chose to do, obviously, that story starts in Buffalo. But it goes 
to many, many other places. Uh, the argument made by the folks who first started Hooters is that they nationalize chicken wings. That's their claim, and they, they, they have a lot, uh, a lot riding on their side. But that it happened after they heard about a place selling chicken wings out of an old gas station in the uh, Fort Lauderdale area. They, they were in the Sarasota Clearwater area, so as they described the adventure, they, they threw some Smirnoff into the back of a van, and they all jumped in and went out in search of chicken wings. And then said, you know, we got to put these in our new restaurant. And it went from there. Mm -hmm. And I love that, you know, as you talk about the Americanization of what we think of, you know, international cuisine. But I mean, you write about uh, bagels, you write about, you know, spaghetti and meatballs of all things. I mean, all of these things that we claim are good old fashioned American foods, but uh, really started somewhere else, didn't they? Well, everything. Look, we're a country of immigrants. To, not to get into the politicization of this, but pretty much everything we eat came from someplace else. Even something as supposedly red-blooded American as a hamburger came from Hamburg, Germany. So there is pretty much nothing that just sprang up as an American food. Even, for example, lobster, which is indigenous to North America, when the explorers and settlers got here and they first saw lobster, that did not look like dinner. They had to learn what to do with lobster from the Native Americans who had been eating it for quite some time, along with oysters. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love the subtitle, The Remarkable People, you know, and their stories behind America's favorite dishes. What did you learn about the people and the food? Well, I came to this after having done diners, with a fervent belief that there are some remarkable people throughout the country who put their heart and soul into homemaking real food. And when I drive into town after town across the country, and, and it's like a, a, a gantlet of chain restaurants, and they're all the same, and any relatively small American city has that same ugly entryway i always think to myself that's a lot of home cooking that was done away with as as americans more and more turned to chains and bizarrely chains that are pretending to be their hometown place uh the the key to me and i certainly emphasized it in the book behind good food is people who really give a damn about making good food. To succeed in, in the uh, hospitality industry, you have to have been born wanting to please people because the chances are you're not going to get rich. And the concept of peeling a bushel of potatoes every day to make your fries fresh isn't going to seem like a lot of fun unless you really care that you make good fries, which requires for one thing, cooking them twice. Mm. So I, the food made well, made interestingly, tends to be made by interesting people. And as much as possible, I wanted to tell the stories of, of these kinds of food, of the restaurants that serve them through the people that run those restaurants or cook in those restaurants. Mm-hmm. 
And some of it, I mean, I, your your background is as a investigative reporter and a journalist. Uh, is that a mindset that you brought to this book to try to uh, tell the story in a very factual way, in, in addition to bringing in some of this passion and emotion? Absolutely. But factual doesn't mean dry. Factual just means tell the truth. Well, true. Uh, whatever <laughs> genre of journalism I'm working in, my standard is don't make a mistake. Please don't make a mistake. Nothing scares me more than the possibility of getting a fact wrong. And in, in food writing, that can be very tough because there are legends that are now fact, such as the allegation that a very, very good hamburger restaurant in New Haven, Louis Lunch, made the first hamburger. There's no proof that Louis Lunch made the first hamburger. Uh, and again, not to denigrate them in any way, they certainly made hamburgers a very long time ago, although they make them on white toast, which means some purists claim they're not hamburgers. And unless it's on a bun, it isn't a hamburger. The, the bottom line is this. I refer to Louis Lunch as forwarding the unpro eventually unprovable claim that they made the first burger. It, it's very, very important to try to separate the fact from the fiction and all these things. For example, was chop suey an American dish or was it an Americanized version of a Chinese dish? There are raging arguments on both side of, sides of that. There's one argument that says it was entirely created uh, to feed Americans because it sounded Chinese and it was something palatable to us. There's another uh, school of thought. The name is a bastardization of a Cantonese phrase that meant odds and ends or bits and pieces. And that back in Canton, there was a dish similar to this by that name that used as its protein offal um, parts of an animal that many Americans won't eat. I researched it as well as as I could. And I've come to the conclusion that in fact, the dish existed in China. Again, not not the way we ate it or, or eat it uh, to this day. But that yeah, it was an Americanization of a Chinese dish. And again, there's no such thing as a Chinese dish because China is regional. It, it was an Americanization of a Cantonese dish. Basically. Yes, yes, understood. Well, as long as we're on Asian cuisine, there's a great story in the book about uh, sushi and uh, gas station sushi, of all things. Yeah, there's a gas station across from Tinker Air Force Base outside Oklahoma City that it has a full-fledged sushi bar in it. I mean, a real sushi bar, not prepackaged sushi. And, and prepackaged sushi is not the bad thing that people necessarily think it is. But you walk into this gas station across from the Walmart and there's there's a guy behind the counter slicing up fresh sushi. Now, again, because our American cuisine takes other countries' foods and, and does to them what we want to either fit American palates or reduce a fear factor in the case of raw fish, um, this place makes great traditional sushi, but their specialty is deep fried rolls where the whole thing goes into the fire. And, and uh, having gone to school in Oklahoma, I can say we, we like our fried food out there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I spent some young years in Oklahoma as well. We, we yeah. like it deep fried for sure. 
So, David, uh, thinking about the book, it's a, it's a real romp across the country and almost the stories of the food. And clearly the TV show is that. I mean, there's a there's a pace, there's a speed, there's a pulse to these stories in these travels. And maybe that's part of the passion. But what do you think is the core fun of these food and diner stories? Well, the book is different from the show. The show, yeah. and again, I, I haven't done the show for a number of years. But the basis of any successful television show, much more than the content, is the concept of voyeurism, creating an experience in which the audience member feels as if he or she is hanging out with someone they want to hang out with, which means that obviously uh, nothing is more important than finding the right host. Now, let me be clear. I didn't find Guy. They gave him to me. I had no idea who he was. And when I went online and looked at him, what I saw was a man child in shorts, flip flops and hair that looked like he had just had his head in a blender. And I thought to myself, I'm screwed. I, when I started working with How long him, is this contract? Yeah, really. I just, yeah. Uh, when I, as soon as I started working with him, I realized that while he was green and had a lot to learn, a, he sucked it up quickly, and B, he's the most naturally talented TV performer I've ever worked with. And I've been in this business literally 40 plus years. So th that's the center of, of, of a TV show. Now, the other technical elements of making a show, I could bore you to death with why we edited the way we edited, the fact that what people don't realize in a show like this is that sound is in some respects more important than pictures because if you want to immerse someone in experience they have to they have to hear the sizzle as the burger hits the grill we literally spent 23 hours audio sweetening every half hour episode now it's different when when you turn this into the written word because writing for tv is about uh, being invisible using your words only to propel the audience to and through various audiovisual experiences. Writing for a book, obviously, you have neither that limitation nor that crutch. Mm -hmm. And in that case, as with all uh, nonfiction writing, or I guess fiction writing as well, you have to find a way to tell the story through the, the view of another human being, because like TV, hanging with people you care about, shared experience uh, is, resonates with us. So the challenge in writing about it, as opposed to having pictures is A, adequately describe, I mean, how many times can you say it was glistening? Mm -hmm. it, you have to be very careful in, in how you use your words to make food appealing. And more important than anything else, you, you've got to get the right stories to tell. I mean, uh, the story of the bagel, when I was allowed to um, have free reign pretty much at Russ and Daughter's appetizing store on the Lower East Side of New York for anyone who's not of my tribe, an appetizing store is a place that sells smoked fish, bagels, things like that. Russ and Daughters is more than 100 years old. It's, it's legendary. 
uh, and they they well, they allowed me behind the counter to to try to slice locks, which is impossible to do. But but again, what I, what I found there was I, I met a guy named Bob Bozick standing in line waiting for whitefish, and Bob Bozick told me his life story, and and he was a heavyweight boxer who's really proud of the fact that even though Larry Holmes beat him, he couldn't knock him out. I mean, he took a beating, but uh, and he pulled a picture out of his wallet showing me him with Larry Holmes. And that segued into a story about him hanging out with the old wise guys who ran boxing in the old days, many of whom were Jewish gangsters, and the experience of going to one of these guys' apartments and sitting around the bed, uh, and the big shot would be in the bed, and they'd bring in plates of stuff from Russ and Daughters, and they'd be eating whitefish and talking about boxing. That's that's how you tell a food story. Because let's face it, more than anything else, food is a social lubricant. Food brings us together. Uh, the worst thing, not the worst thing, I mean, there's been a tragic loss of life and jobs, but for me, what I have missed so much in the past year plus of COVID is the ability to say to friends, hey, let's go grab a meal. Mm -hmm. I mean, three days ago, now that we're vaccinated and a particular couple that were friendly with us vaccinated, we went to their house without masks. We hugged. We had appetizers and a special bottle of wine that he'd been saving. And then the bottle I bought to compete with it. And, and then he made cacio e pepe, that, that wonderful Roman pasta with cheese and pepper. It was an extraordinary evening. It was, you know, it was a basic evening. We're at a friend's house. But it's been a year plus since we've been able to do that. And, and that's so much of what food's about. Yeah, now that's memorable. You know? and, then, and then my wife, incredibly... She's an incredibly erudite individual, extremely well-educated, um, a lawyer, now a realtor. She'd never had cacio e pepe before. So she had me make it the next night. <laughs> <laughs> Two nights in a row. Who does it that? It was fantastic. It's, it's, it, it can be tough to make. I love that story. Well, and, and David, I wanted to sort of roll the tape back to the pitch. Okay. You know, you had this idea for a show and then years later, an idea for the book. Mm -hmm. And I had a chance uh, a couple of episodes ago to interview David Knoll, who created Chopped on the Food Network. And he was talking about these show pitches. And so I couldn't help but wonder, what was what was the pitch? You know, you're in the conference the room. Pitch, the pitch was, was this an idea. <laughs> no, the pitch was an accident and it was in no conference room. Here's what happened. When I left the world of network television and opened my own production company, that's a euphemism for I now have no income. Yes. So after getting nowhere, proposing shows to various networks, I called Al Roker. Now, Al, who since moved on to the weekday Today Show, actually worked for me when I ran the weekend show. He also had a production company on the side. I called up. I said, Al, I'm broke. You got any work? And he said, yeah, I'm doing stuff for the Food Network. You want to do some of that? So I said, sure. So I did some segments for his show, Roker on the Road. And then he started subcontracting hours to me, one of them being an hour on the history of diners. Uh, I, I had to move on and, and try to pitch the network myself at some point because uh, you, you, you don't, it's better to be the contractor than the subcontractor. So I started pitching the Food Network. And I was remarkably, incredibly unsuccessful. There was a, a, an executive there who was kind enough to take my calls and who would say, no, no. It went on for 
at least months, probably more than a year. Anyway, I'm on the phone. We're living in Minnesota at the time. That's a long story uh, on a horse farm, uh, which was nice. And so I'm, I'm in my basement office. It's late on a Thursday or a Friday afternoon, almost evening. And I'm on the phone pitching, 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 pitching. And she's saying, no, 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 no. Finally, she says, haven't you got anything else about diners? And I said, oh, yeah, I've been developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And she said, well, that sounds interesting. Uh, again, this was the Thursday or Friday. She said, have something on my desk Monday. We have a development meeting Tuesday. I said, okay, great. Got off the phone. The only problem with this turn of events was I had not been developing a show called Diners, <laughs> Drive-Ins, and Dives. I had invented the name on the spot, pulled it either out of thin air or out of a body part, depending upon how scatological you want to get. <laughs> yes. I spent the weekend making phone calls. Remember them? I wrote up a pitch, centered the pitch on Monday, and shortly thereafter, they asked me to do a one-hour special called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, which eventually morphed into the series. So I'd rather be lucky than good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lesson for all of us. When somebody says, have it on my desk, you figure it have out. It on your, you? Have it on the desk. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, then fast forward to the book. Maybe that was as lucky, but uh, I'm sure there was a story behind that. You no, said, hey, now I'm going to put together a book and I got to pitch that too. After Diners, I moved on. I, I did another series on craft beer, which I syndicated because I had clearly no desire to make any money. After that, I, I did development work for an online streaming venture. And for a long, long time, as many TV producers do, I had been harboring the desire to write a book. It's a different kind of storytelling. I change careers every few years. You know, one minute you're investigative reporter, then, then you're a foreign reporter, then you're a food. It, so it was not unusual for me to be itching to do something else. And, and after years of the concept gestating in the back of my mind, I said to myself, let's sit down and do it. What I did not realize when I made the decision was that I had picked the most complicated kind of book to research. In other words, I've got... 12 or 13 different foods or foodways in this book. Each one of them could have been a book of its own. And the amount of research that I had to do for the chapter was nearly as much as I would have done for a book. So working at a pretty fast pace, it took me two years to write the book. It also, as a first time author and not a celebrity, uh, it ain't easy to find a publisher. I was able to obtain a well-connected agent through a relatively famous food personality that I know, but she was not, this was not at the top of her to-do list. And after a year, I'm writing away, securing the knowledge, I'm going to sell this book somehow. About a year, hell, almost two years into it, she uh, sent me an email saying, she can't sell this thing. So I um, started making some phone calls and asked a fellow who I had interviewed for the book, who had a book of his own, uh, if he had any recommendations for agents. And he said to me, no, I actually did, did my deal directly with the publisher. I can send you on to them. And he sent me on to 
the um, one of the hottest publishers in the business, Mango Publishing. They're the in two of the last few years, they've been the um, fastest growing independent publisher in the country. I sent a fellow there an email and like two weeks later, I had a contract. So I, I think the lesson is don't give up. That's terrific. Well, listeners, my guest is David Page. He's the author of a new book just out, Food Americana, The Remarkable People and the Incredible Stories Behind America's Favorite Dishes. And he knows uh, of what he speaks from his creation of diners, drive-ins, and dives. So David, this idea of not giving up and this persistence, speak to our listeners you know, who are working on a project like this. It's a seed of an idea or it's something they have been working along for a couple of years. Where do you keep the persistence and passion? What, what keeps the drive going for you? You have to believe in what you're doing. If your goal is just to write a book, you're not going to make it work. If your goal is to tell stories about which you care deeply, then you got to stick with it. Uh, look, Ted Williams was the greatest hitter of modern times, and the best he ever did was get a hit four times out of 10. So I think one of the things, I don't want to sound generationally classist here, but I fear that we are not teaching young people to expect to fail and then keep going. The number of television shows I have pitched over the course of my career is insane, but I kept at it. When I was an investigative reporter, the number of phone calls you make to get nowhere. I remember years ago uh, when I was uh, an investigative producer working for Brian Ross, who at the time was the chief investigative correspondent at ABC News, we were hearing about a real uptick in this thing called meth. And this was early on. And I said, let me find out what I can about meth. I, I, I need, and again, it, it was going to be a magazine story for TV, so I needed a central character. But it's TV, you also need video. And it's investigative television, so it better be sexy video. And I spent weeks calling and calling people all over the country, completely striking out until quite by accident, some guy cold called at a police department somewhere, said to me, you know, there's a cop in West Valley City, Utah, who's been really involved in uh, undercover stuff about meth. And he gave me the guy's name and I called him up and I explained who I was. And I said, you know what? I'd really like to find a way to get involved in taping some kind of undercover activity involving meth. And he said, he didn't know me from Adam. He said, well, you know, I've been, I've been videotaping my stings for the past five years. And I said, well, could I have, is there any way I could get access to that? He said, sure. I got them all in a box. Come on out here. I got on the next plane <laughs> and I flew to Utah and I went to a production house and I started dubbing this tape. He was a, he was the best undercover I'd ever met him undercover buying meth making meth arresting guy it was an unbelievable story and it only happened because you can't be afraid that people will say no to you I, I mean i have a lovely sentence or two in this book in the chapter about bagels and locks uh, i i have mel brooks reminiscing about 
eating locks as a child. How did I get that? I had the chutzpah, which you know the Jewish word. Mm -hmm. Chutzpah means you kill your mother and father, then throw yourself on the mercy of the court because you're an orphan. Um, I had the chutzpah. I did, I did not know that definition. That's, that's the <laughs> traditional definition. I had the chutzpah to go search for his production company and sent an email to a guy asking if Mr. Brooks would have any interest in discussing the subject. And I got an email back saying, yeah, he'd like to. So I had a phone call with Mel Brooks. The point is, you got to ask. Mm -hmm. if, if you don't ask, nothing's going to happen. Yes, so true. Well, this is fantastic. Now, I know the, the book is just out, but you're making me wonder as you continue to reinvent and you know, find new outlets, what's next for you, David? I'm already at work on the next book. Okay, I figured. It's, it's sort of a sequel, <laughs> sort of not. And at the same time, I'm also working with a uh, co-author on a cookbook. Oh, that'll be fun. She's the cook. I'll do the writing. It's, it's, it'll work out fine. Inspired yeah, so, from any of these uh, travels and visits? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, that's going to be a lot of fun. And maybe you want to do a podcast on this. Maybe we should talk about that. Back as soon as I got something else to talk about. How's that? <laughs> I keep coming back. Well, listeners, my guest has been David Page, author of a great book, Food Americana, former creator of diners, drive-ins, and dives, and always cooking up new and creative angles. And we can't wait to hear what is ahead for David. Appreciate you coming on the show, David. Mark, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you along the road somewhere, I'm sure, at the next roadside. Cafe. We'll have a meal together. There you go. And listeners, come back again for the next episode. I'm Mark Stenson, and we've been unlocking your world of creativity. See you next time. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.Love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Our podcast is supported by Adobe in the Adobe Creative Cloud, the world's best creative app and services, so you can make almost anything you can imagine wherever you're inspired. We use Adobe to help make this podcast, using Audition, Premiere Rush, InDesign, and more. So join the creative community with the Adobe Creative Cloud, and let's make something better, unlocking your world of creativity.